This week, we're resharing one of our favorite episodes of the Single Tracks podcast. If you've already heard this one, don't worry, because we'll be back next week with an all-new show. Single Tracks is psyched that Jameis Bikes has come on as a supporter of the podcast and is also a supporter of the website. Jameis has been designing and building quality bikes since 1979, and they were among the first to produce mountain bikes beginning in 1982. The brand has brought the world some iconic and award-winning mountain bikes over the past 40 or so years, and the Dragon has been the soul of the brand for decades. Introduced in 1993, the Jameis Dragon Hardtail delivers the feel that only comes with high-quality steel, and it's done so for nearly 30 years running. The newer Jameis Portal and Hardline full suspension bikes feature the innovative and race-proven 3VO suspension platform, built into both carbon and aluminum frame options. You can check out this year's all-new Dragon and 3VO bikes, along with the entire lineup of Jameis high-performance mountain bikes, at JameisBikes.com. That's JameisBikes.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Gene Hamilton. Gene is a former pro downhill racer who created one of the first mountain bike skills courses in the late 1990s. Today, Better Ride hosts clinics all around the U.S. teaching regular riders and pros alike how to ride faster. Thanks for joining us, Gene. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into mountain bike racing? Well, that, that's uh, <laughs> kind of a funny story. So um, I was um, a professional or trying to be a professional snowboard racer. I mean, I basically, like a lot of professional mountain bikers, like me when I was a professional mountain biker, mm-hmm. I quote was a professional, but I wasn't getting paid, <laughs> right. you know. I was, was spinning you did, so that, that made you a pro, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> exactly. And I, I call it a I ski bomb or a snowboard bomb. Well, and I, yeah, you know, and I did well in competitions, but they didn't pay enough to pay the rent, you know? Right. So um, got my first mountain bike in 1989, and then um, I think it was the summer of 1992, my mountain bike was getting dated suspension mm-hmm. had come out, you know, and right. front suspension had come out and there were some cool things that I wanted. And I happened to be, um, at the grocery store at this little grocery store, ideal market in Boulder, Colorado. And there was a bike shop next door and the KHS, um, uh, rep was in there talking to the owner. And when he walked out, I go, Hey dude, you know, it was like, how do I get a sponsorship or something wow. like that? You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you know, I laid it down. You know, I'm a pro mountain bike, a pro snowboarder. And, uh, you know, I want a bike at a discount because you know, <laughs> really? I'm arrogant and, and a jerk, yeah. you know, yeah. I guess. So anyway, he, he said, Oh, you know, he goes, do you live here? I said, yeah, but I'm about to move to San Diego. And he said, well, when you get to San Diego, find a cage KHS dealer mm-hmm. and Ask them about the farm team. We'll give you a bike for wholesale. And then if you do five races, we'll take, we'll give you another 10% back. I'm oh, like, wow. sweet. You know, <laughs> I knew nothing <laughs> yeah. about mountain bike racing, yeah. but I just wanted to deal on a bike and I figured I'll do a couple races. It'll be good training for snowboarding probably. Yeah. So I moved to uh, San Diego to work for a friend of mine and I went to the local KHS dealer, a really nice older man. And, Asked him to be on the team, and he said that sounds great. And he I said, "I've seen oh, you biking or anything. You didn't like show up with race no. results. You're just like, hey, I'm a guy. 
Can I be on your yeah, team? Exactly. It was <laughs> it was a great deal. I wish other other companies should do this though, because I think it was a great deal for KHS too. Because yeah. you got to remember, KHS makes the same amount of money whether they sell it to the shop or they sell it to me at a discount. You know, right. true. So this really nice um, owner of the bike shop sets me up on the team, and he says, "Oh, by the way, there's this woman on this on the team named Marla." She's lived here for a while mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll introduce you to her and she can show you the local trails. And I'm like, cool, you know, sounds good. Mm-hmm. So, um, we, uh, I met this Marla woman at the bike shop and, uh, she was all covered in dirt, like a mountain biker, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you know, I was just like, okay, interesting enough. And we set up a time to meet and go for a ride. And, um, I, again, remember, I knew nothing about mountain bike racing at the time. <laughs> right. So the guy at the shop said, you know, this Marla woman's an expert, you know, she can probably teach you a lot and whatnot, you know, and being the young, arrogant person I was at the time, I'm like, I'm a pro mount, a pro snowboarder. I used to race BMX. And back when I raced BMX, they were all just two foot tall tabletops on the tracks. You know, they, <laughs> they, they didn't have near the skill BMX requires nowadays. Right. Mm-hmm. Not even close. But anyway, you know, so, and I, obviously I was a, probably a bit sexist back then. So we set up this time to go ride and, and I pick her up and, and I'm hungry. So on the way there, I'm like, oh, look, a Taco Bell and on the way <laughs> to do this ride. Yeah. Exactly. And she's looking at me like I'm on drugs, you know, she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? So anyway, we, we get to the trailhead and she's like, okay, follow me, you know? And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm like, I'm like, remember, man, she thinks she's an expert. Don't hurt her ego by smashing her, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we start riding and, you know, like most mountain bike rides, it starts with a climb. And, you know, halfway up the climb, this woman's just totally lost me. She's so far ahead of me. I can't even <laughs> see her, you know? Yeah. And uh, we get to the top of the climb. Or I get to the top of the climb and she's up there just doing circles on the little flat space on top of the climb. And she's like, you're doing better than most of the boys. <laughs> <laughs> and I still to this day don't know if she was being nice or if I was actually doing better than most of the boys. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she proceeded to kick my ass all over that ride. <laughs> it was it was really bad for my ego and probably great for her ego. Right. Um, and probably just what I needed for my ego, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, keep it in check a little bit. So um, after that. She um, told me about some races coming up and she's like, you know, you want to go with me to this race? And I said, sure. So um, we went to this race in Temecula, California. And, um, you know, I, I'm telling her, hey, I used to race BMX, you know, I should probably sign up for the expert class. And it's a cross country <laughs> race, by the way. Oh, geez. <laughs> right. And, and she, she is in the nicest way she could. She's like, Gene, you know, it's really hard to downgrade once you upgrade, mm. you know why don't you start in beginner class? And, you know, if you do well, you can always upgrade, you know? And I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to smoke these poor guys. This isn't really fair, you know, but (laughs) I'm just sandbagging here, but yeah, you know, I'm totally sandbagging here. So we get to the race and, you know, I, we do the sign up and all that. And you know how they, uh, in cross country racing, they have like staging, you know, like all the expert 30 to 39 meet here, all the, Mm -hmm. you know, so I line up with my little group of, of beginners, 19 to 29 or whatever the heck the age group was. And um, I look around and 
I'm the only guy without clipless pedals. And this is 1992, remember, right? Yeah, clipless pedals yeah. would probably just come out in 1992. Right. Uh, it might be 93. Again, I don't know the exact year. But, um, you know, I look around, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And then I look around, and I'm also the only guy without shaved legs. I'm like, these guys are beginners? And I start looking at their legs, and, like, they've got calf muscles as big as my head, you know? And I'm like <laughs> – these guys are beginners. I'm like, uh oh, you know. Yeah. And then, so then the race starts, and and um, I we had pre-ridden the course. Marlon and I had pre pre-ridden that course. Um, the, I think the day before, or maybe a couple of days before. Um, so when we pre-rode the course, and I thought this was going to be like the race on the climbs, we would chit chat, mm-hmm. and then on the downhill, we would you know kind of bomb the downhill to the yeah, best of our abilities. Kind of, yeah, kind of enduro style, right? So I thought that was what racing was like, right? <laughs> so, you know, the, the gun goes off, and these guys with caps as big as my head, they just start sprinting as hard right. as they can. And I'm like, oh, yeah. you know, it's like I'm immediately <laughs> in last place. And I, I remember snowboard racing is a 20 to 30 second event, right? Mm-hmm. I've never done an endurance sport in my life, and I know I've got asthma. You know, like I have an inhaler and everything, you know? Yeah. So all of a sudden I'm going as hard as I can and I, and it never relented. Yeah. You know, I was like, you know, I was expecting that we'd catch our breath at some point, but no, (laughs) you just go as hard as you freaking can for an hour and a half. Yeah. You know, and along the way, because I guess of my old BMX riding and probably more probably from snowboarding. I was passing a few people here and there in the downhills, you know, and as I recall, the numbers might be a little bit off, but there were 25 riders in my little beginner class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the way there, I'm expecting to win, you know, by a big margin. And I got 13th oh, out of wow. 25, right? Middle of the it's, pack? Not exact bad. middle of the pack, right? <laughs> and honestly, it was one of the most proud days of my life in my sporting career. I mean, oh, I'd wow. won plenty of snowboard races, but snowboard races don't require the kind of commitment a cross country mountain bike race mm. does. Mm. And I had never pushed my body that hard in my life, you know? And honestly, I didn't know you could push your body that hard and not like have a heart attack or something. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just totally naive to the whole experience and you know, so yeah, I was really proud, you know, even though I expected to win and got 13th, you know, just the fact I didn't die was mm-hmm. kind of being, right. you know, and I beat half of those shave leg kids with their, <laughs> w- with their, uh, clipless pedals, you know, I mean, I had toe clips, you know? Yeah. I mean, Jeez. <laughs> so, uh, and like, you know, regular s- skateboard shoes or something like I didn't even have any specialized shoes or anything, you know? So, uh, so anyway, that was my first race. And, you know, as much as miserable as I made it sound, it was actually a lot of fun. Cause like I said, I'd never pushed my body that hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And from that point on, I was just addicted. I'm like, this is freaking cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, uh, Oh, and, uh, Marla, um, it's Marla Streb, by the way, she was a pro downhill racer in the, uh, this is before she became a pro, but she was a pro downhill racer in the nineties and early two thousands. Oh, and, cool. um, so Marla during that race was, um, I'll think of her name in a second. There was a, a factory KHS rider there. Um, 
she's from Bale, Colorado. She's a really nice woman. And mm-hmm. uh, I can't think of her name right now. I'll think of it in a second, maybe. But anyway, Marla was trying to pass her to prove, you know, like maybe she deserves to be on the factory team, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and while Marla was passing her, she broke her collarbone. She crashed and broke her collarbone. So that was my introduction. Marla or the other woman? Marla did. Oh, geez. Yeah. So that was my introduction to mountain bike racing. I, you know, (laughs) I suffered more than I've ever suffered in my life. And the woman that brought me to the race, this so-called expert woman, she broke her collarbone. (laughs) I'm like, this is an interesting sport. Yeah. It almost sounds like Marla purposely didn't, she didn't prepare you for that race, right? She kind of wanted you to suffer yeah, and I think, to really I like think she saw ego. my ego yeah, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> i really do i mean and you know i owe her for that because i mean that was a good favor you know i think we all need to be humbled a bit yeah you know or not maybe not every day but often <laughs> right. we need to be humbled there are times yeah so then we we did a couple more small races together and uh we started going to big bear which is uh outside of LA up in the mountains and um, in the San Gabriel mountains. And um, there I did my first downhill race and there, because of my, my cocky attitude, I signed up for sport instead of beginner. And, uh, <laughs> and I did okay though. I did a lot better. I got like fifth out of 30 or something. So I'm like, okay, oh, okay you know, I, I probably, uh, you know, maybe this is better for me. And then and just, this is a funny story, but uh a, a couple of weeks after that race where I did a like cross country race on Sunday and downhill on Saturday or vice versa, forget how it was back then. The guys at team big bear invented this thing called downhill mania hmm. where you're going to race three different downhills over the weekend and you're going to go down four at a time and the top two keep advancing. Uh-huh, okay. Okay. So we get there and it's raining and I don't know, 45 degrees at the base of the mountain and then halfway up the lift it's sleeting on us at the very top it's snowing well you're a snowboarder so you're probably stoked right well yeah except for you know (laughs) i'm from alabama i hate cold weather i really really hate cold weather and i hate rainy cold wet cold weather probably the most okay so and I had nothing, you know, I had my little, oh, part of that KHS team deal was we had to, uh, again, at wholesale prices, we had to buy a little KHS jersey and KHS shorts, you know, <laughs> okay. and, and this is just Lycra. Yeah. And that's all I had with me. Oh, wow. Right. You know, like I didn't have any of my snowboarding gear. You know, I was in San Diego for the summer. I didn't bring <laughs> my snowboard gear from Colorado. Yeah. You know, all that was in storage back in Colorado. So I bought some sweatpants. I thought that'd be a good idea. <laughs> and that was a really bad idea because when sweatpants get really wet, they weigh like 6,000 pounds. Right. And they go from your waist to about your knees, which is really <laughs> dangerous when you're riding downhill in the mud. Yeah, no kidding. So I literally, I just quit after we had to do three qualifying runs, I think one qualifying run on each track or something. And after my first qualifying run, I'm just like, this isn't fun at all. This is miserable. Yeah. So I quit and, uh, and just cheered Marlon. And I think she either won or got second. She did quite well, Oh, cool. but that was pretty much introduction to racing. And then I moved back to Colorado that winter to, to continue my snowboard, uh, racing. And, um, 
but I was so into mountain bike racing that um, I, I bartended for a living while I was trying to make it as a snowboarder. Mm-hmm. So I would go out at three in the morning after bartending and snowshoe up Snowmass Mountain, you know, wow. and, and I don't know if you ever snowshoed, but it's the most most pain for least amount of reward thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> right. You know, but, but it was really fun. Cause you know, I was, I, it was only me and the snowcat drivers out there at two in the morning and everything yeah. is so still, you know? So it was, but anyway, that's how into it I was. I did that all winter. And then the next summer I stayed in Colorado and I competed in uh, the Corp series, the Colorado off-road point series, which later was sold to uh, Eric Jean and became the Mountain States Cup. Okay. And I miss those people. That was, uh, that was a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you had a lot of early success in racing, kind of your introduction, and kind of sounds like, too, you were figuring it out as you go. I mean, you did have Marla, and I'm sure there were others who kind of mentored you and, and showed you along the way. But then it also sounds like, um, from what I've read that you reached sort of, uh, a wall in terms of your own mountain bike skills development. How did you end up going about researching proper mountain bike skills? <laughs> Funny you should ask. <laughs> so, um, one of the, um, that winter Marla, uh, got a contract with, um, Iron Horse. Okay. Um, to race professionally and her, um, the main person on that team was a guy named uh, Toby Henderson, who was one of my BMX heroes back mm-hmm. in the day. Yeah. So I would ask people like Toby. I remember asking him also because we lived in San Diego. Sometimes uh, I would ride with Mike King um, just on cross country rides and stuff. But Mike King was, I don't know if you know his name, but he was one of the best uh, American downhillers and a great uh, BMXer before that. Mm-hmm. And Mike King was just, he's a really quiet guy, you know, like a lot of people thought he was a jerk, but after getting to know him a little bit, he was just really, really quiet, you know, like yeah. he's just one of those people that's not very sociable. So, um, mm-hmm. so anyway, I would, I would ask him and I'd ask Toby and they would say things like let off the brakes, you wuss or, um, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, I tried that and I went, you know, I was asking specifically about cornering technique yeah. and I asked Toby. And Toby literally said, let off the brakes, you wuss. And I'm like, you know, I, I tried that and I went flying into the woods. Like that right, didn't work right. too well. You know? <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm like, there has to be a technique. And so many top pros at the time said, everyone's got their own style, huh. which was true at the time. It was definitely yeah. true at the time. Yeah. But being a, at, the, at that time, by then, I was a, um, this is quite a few, you know, this is four years. This is, you know, in the, I turned pro in 1995 and, you know, my, the story before was from 92 or three. Okay. So, you know, this was in, you know, a couple of years later and by then I'd become a snowboard coach and that's what I was doing for a living was coaching the steamboat Springs winter sports club snowboard team. So okay. I had learned through some of the best snowboard coaches in the world, you know, the people that coach our U S snowboard team. That mm-hmm. yeah, there might be a lot of different styles, but there's one style that wins races and all the other styles don't win races, you know? So uh-huh, like right. what you want to be, what you want to do is become great at this particular style. And it's not so much a style as it's a series of, you know, techniques, basically mm-hmm. body position, yeah. vision. So 
you know, after asking all these pros who said everyone has their own style and they, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to figure this out for myself then because there's got to be the right way. Mm -hmm. So I'm a bit of a nerd. So the first thing I did was I bought a bunch of mountain biking books, you know, by, Mm -hmm. by great writers, like people like Ned Overend and stuff. Yeah. But, but those books weren't actually much of a help. I mean, I learned a lot about strategy and cross country racing and that sort of thing. But if you think about it, people like Ned Overend basically invented mountain biking technique. Mm -hmm. And often the people, like, if you think about it, I don't think anybody here would take a ski lesson from the guy that invented snow skiing, right? (laughs) You know, the the equipment has changed a great deal and there's been a lot of study on technique, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm sure whatever techniques the first skiers had was not near what the techniques they're using to win a world cup these days in world cup ski racing, you know? Yep. Yep. So, um, those books, as far as skills, they really weren't that good, you know, and these weren't coaches. These were just really good riders. So often they have trouble explaining what they're doing also. Right. You know, absolutely. But, you know, and if you look back at it, I always encourage my, my students to do this because, you know, I'm, I'm getting pretty old and, uh, I realize that most people have no idea nowadays what mountain biking was like in the Mm nineties. So I tell them to go back and go to YouTube and type in, you know, 1996 world cup downhill race or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, and I go watch, you'll see that no one knew what they were doing with the, (laughs) with the exception of, of, uh, Nico Vulio. You know, Nicholas Fulio, he's the uh, nickname is the alien 10 time world champion. Mm-hmm. He knew what he was doing. And that's why he would win by 10 seconds in a downhill yeah. race. Wow. Often, right. You know, so so I started studying Nico and then I realized, you know, a very similar sport is motocross. But motocross has been around a lot longer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the people that coach it they've studied it. They aren't like the, you know, racers that are just figuring out the sport. They've had years of studying what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. So I actually learned a lot. I had two books. One was from, uh, Jeremy McGrath, uh, from his coach. Mm-hmm. And the other one, I think was a guy that coached, uh, uh, Ricky Carmichael, the goat. Um, okay. so, you know, I, I learned a lot from those motocross books and then, and and watching video of Nico though, and you can still watch a video of Nico in 1996, and say, well, yep, he's doing. Other than this one thing that that I think Nathan Rennie kind of invented that I'll get to in a minute. Other than that, pretty much everything Nico was doing in '96 is still what you want to be doing. Like Nico had oh, figured wow. it out. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty Even pretty with amazing. The equipment that was available then too. I mean, I imagine that that made it harder. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Our bikes were way too short. Our head angles were too steep. Uh, we had these little tiny 26 inch wheels. I don't know if you ever heard of those things, but you know, um, I'm, I'm half joking, but yeah. So, and then though, there was this guy, he was one of the best downhillers in the world from Australia. And he was, he was 18. I believe at the time I became somewhat friends with him and, um, his name's Nathan Rennie. And, uh, he went on to, he was one of the first members of the Santa Cruz syndicate, uh, race team. And he did win the world cup overall one year in downhill phenomenal athlete. I noticed in a video that he and Nathan, I mean, he and Cedric Gracia were both doing the same thing with their hips. Like basically 
at the time, I thought they were sticking their hips to the outside of the, the corner. Mm-hmm. What they're actually doing is letting the bike lean over while they stayed on top of the bike, oh, you right. know, but, but, you know, basically their hips were beside their saddle in a corner, not beneath their saddle, if that makes okay. sense to you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I asked Nathan why he did that. And he said, because it gives you more traction. And so I started, actually, I started doing it before I asked Nathan and I realized it gave me a lot more traction. I asked Nathan about it. He, he, he would give me a few more tips because Nathan would come to the U S and if, unless Greg Menard showed up, Nathan would usually win, you know, the, the U S national races. Mm-hmm. So Nathan was, you know, he was crushing it back then. So it's kind of funny. I was 30, I was like, this was like 98. So I was 33 years old and I'm learning from an 18 year old, you know, it's, yeah. uh, but anyway, Nathan really helped a lot. And to this day, and, um, you know, Nathan's technique is still spot on. The biggest thing Nathan did, uh, different than Nico was Nathan, um, hinged. So as his back is literally parallel to planet earth. You know, if that makes instead of being yeah. more vertical to planet Earth. Yeah. And what that does is it gives you just so much negative travel in your arms, like sag in your suspension. So as you don't get yanked, right. like if there's a rocky corner, if you're if your arms are straight, as your wheels go down that rock, you're going to get yanked forward. Mm-hmm. Right. But if your arms are bent, all you have to do is slowly extend your arms as your wheel goes away from your body mm-hmm. and your upper body doesn't move at all. Hmm. And he was the first one to do that and do it from top to bottom. So anyway, you know, I owe a lot to Nathan Rennie. I learned a lot from that guy and from those motorcycle coaches. Hmm. Yeah, cool. So yeah, it sounds like you studied a number of athletes and looked even to other sports uh, to kind of figure out what what they had figured out. Were there any surprises initially or aha moments where you're like, oh, wow, I never, never would have thought of that or like that seems really counterintuitive. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, two. The first one that was just mind boggling to me was the concept of counter steering. You know, um, so in both those motocross books I was telling you about and a book by um, by a, a road motorcycle coach named Keith Code. He's a very famous, you know, the crotch rocket type racer guys. You know, okay. he coaches that. They all mentioned this thing called counter steering and they all said that on a two-wheeled vehicle going above, and they use like 12 miles an hour, going above 12, this is the physics of how a bike turns, and we're all doing it. A lot of us just don't know that we're doing it. Huh, okay. And so, you know, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm not counter-steering. Because counter-steering to me is like, if you've ever watched Mert Lawwell or one of the, you know, or, or flat track motorcycle racing, where they're going around a flat oval on the dirt, mm-hmm. You know, and their wheels turn to the right. Their 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 front wheel mm-hmm. is basically steered to the right, but they're making a left turn. Yeah. To me, that's counter steering, right? And I'm pretty right. sure my wheel wasn't doing that. <laughs> yeah. You know. But then through a lot of experiments, I realized that I am counter steering. But I, I kind of for my courses I've changed the name to counter pressure because okay. we only truly counter steer at the initiation of a turn. Yeah. Once we initiate that turn, the wheel somewhat flops in. And what we're doing is with counter pressure, we're fighting that flop. If okay. we let the wheel flop in, our bike would stand up and we would either high side, you know, 
fly over the top of our bike mm-hmm. or we would go straight again, but our turn would be over. So we do use a counter steering motion to initiate the turn. And in, in my courses, it's also for my students, one of the biggest aha moments. I mean, some of them know it. My students that ride motorcycles sometimes know it, but a lot of students don't. And for mm-hmm. them, it was just like me. It was just like, it opens up just this whole other world and makes you understand cornering. Yeah. And you know, it, anyway, you asked me for an aha moment. That was one of them. Yeah. And the next one, and this to this day cracks me up. And this is why, this is why there's coaches in almost every sport. Um, I, I like to use skiing as the example of this snow skiing. Half the reason I got into snowboarding is snow skiing is the least intuitive thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> You know, like your instincts tell you to do the exact opposite things that you want to do on skis to ski correctly. Yeah. You know, the biggest one being leaning back. You know, if when you're fearful, the human wants to move away from danger. Mm -hmm. So on snow skis, you know, when you're going downhill, if you get nervous, you want to lean back. Yeah. Which is the worst thing you can do on a snow <laughs> uh, on skis or a snowboard, actually. Yeah, and, I'm teaching um, my son how to rollerblade, and it's the same thing. He wants to lean back, and I keep saying, "Yeah, lean forward, lean forward." Yeah, exactly. And leaning forward intuitively feels scary as crap. You right. know, yeah. you think you're going to flip over forward. Mm-hmm. So, so it turns out it's the same thing on mountain biking. You know, like when 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 I first turned pro, most of us would brag, even with our little 26 inch rear wheels. We would have skid marks from our tire on our butt because that's how, that's how far back we were getting on these steep hills, you know, but it turns out what we need to do, which does still involve your butt being behind the seat on a steep hill, but we need to keep our weight on the pedals. And I learned that from a motorcycle book. Mm. And I found when I kept my weight on my pedals that I was, had much more control and felt more in balance. And I remember I did a course in bootleg Canyon, one of my downhill courses and to get more people into the course, uh, as I was telling you before, my friend, Marla, uh, Streb was really famous. So I had her, uh, hired her to be my assistant coach. Mm. Right. So we spent the weekend camp next to each other in a little Volkswagen vans in the parking lot. And we would coach during the day. And at night we would discuss technique because I'd been coaching Marla off and on more with her mental game, not with her skills. Oh, um, yeah. And just a shout out to this person. One of the first people to coach mountain bike skills in a structured way was a woman named Blair Lombardi. Hmm. And um, she had taught Marla. And I remember riding behind Marla and just being like, oh, my gosh, you know, like she's perfect. Like her skill you know, it's just spot on. I was yeah. always amazed by her skill, you know, um, once she had worked with this woman, Blair Lombardi, as far as the weight on the pedals, that was an aha moment for me. I'm discussing, you know, the course before, before it starts with Marla, obviously I need to make sure she's on the same page I am with the coaching. And I talk about, Hey, I learned this cool new thing. I learned it from a motocross book. Uh-huh. I'm trying to keep all my weight on my pegs or on my pedals, you know? Yeah. yeah. And she looked at me and she laughed. She goes, oh, I've been doing that for years. <laughs> and I'm like, well, thanks for telling me. Yeah. Because you know? <laughs> I wasn't doing that for years. Right. Uh, you know, and it's and it's one of those things, you know, as I mentioned before, 
It's where the instincts get in the way. Because, mm-hmm. man, I still to this day, I tell my students, I've been teaching, you know, since almost since I started Better Ride. I started Better Ride in 99. I think uh, I started, I learned the the weight on the pedals thing in like 90, uh, in like 2001 or something like that. But uh, even to this day, so for, for now, for 20 years, I've been teaching people to keep all their weight in the pedals, no matter what's going on, mm-hmm. other than maybe in a manual. But, you know, that's, you're not, it's a different story. But um, I still, when I get scared, the first thing that happens is that butt starts to scoot back. Right. Because that's a human instinct to move away from danger. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't matter that I know to stay centered and it doesn't matter that I've even, I mean, it somewhat matters. I've been practicing it forever because I don't get back that much. And I usually immediately catch myself and get centered again, Mm -hmm. but it just shows you how powerful our instincts are. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, what's the best way to to counteract that? Is it just practice and, and constantly reminding yourself? Yeah, exactly. You know, and doing drills. You know, one, one place I always work on weight in the pedals, like here in Moab, I live on top of a hill. So unless I want to ride, um, pipe dream, which is basically in my backyard, Mm -hmm. every other ride I do for my house, I start descending on pavement. Okay. That's the perfect place to work on it. Otherwise you're bored, you know? (laughs) Right. I remember the, the, um, the iron horse classic years ago had part of their cross country course had a downhill section on pavement. And I remember thinking, this is an abomination, you know, like it's okay if a climb was on pavement, maybe, but you can't have a descent in a mountain bike race on pavement. You know, why waste a downhill? It's why waste a downhill. Exactly. But unfortunately we all have probably areas where we're descending on a dirt road in a straight line and it's boring as crap, you know, or we're descending on a little piece of pavement. Those are great places to work on it because otherwise you'd just be bored because you can't, if it's a gnarly trail and you're really focused on your weight and your pedals, you're probably not looking ahead. You're probably doing something else wrong and you're probably going to crash. So that's where so many mountain bikers make the mistake of thinking they can actually ride their bike and practice at the same time on trail. Mm. Interesting. You know, yeah. because there's just way too much self-preservation when you're on trail kicking in, Mm -hmm. you know, and you forget. I mean, even with my students, I say, okay, what's our purpose? Okay. You know, purpose is looking through these corners. We get to the bottom. I'm like, did you look through those corners? I did the first couple, but then I, you know, I I got distracted and, you know, (laughs) you know, you forget, you know, like basketball players, if Shaquille O'Neal is on your team, you don't practice layups with Shaquille O'Neal guarding the basket. Right. <laughs> Even though you're a pro and you've been practicing layups since you were six years old, you still practice with no one guarding the basket. So you get the mechanics down correctly. Yeah. You bring Does that make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And they might spend, you know, 10 or 20% of their time playing against Shaquille O'Neal. Mm-hmm. But the majority of the time is doing drills. Right. And that's the only way to create procedural memory that just fires. Because what we want is no matter how gnarly that trail is, our body just does what it's supposed to do. Mm, yeah. Right? And and the only way to do that is to practice with an eye on perfection. You know, if you're practicing at 80% right, you might say, dude, I'm doing it 80% right, and that does sound good. 
Yeah. But another way of saying that is you're practicing doing it 20% wrong. Right. You know, so it's, it's imperative that we spend time practicing off the trail. Hmm. So we get these, the procedural memory, procedural memory is like a recipe in your brain for how to do something such as a manual. Yeah. Right. Um, you've got to get that recipe wired in your brain. So it is the circuit that fires whenever you want that front wheel to come up while coasting, just the manual circuit fires. Hmm. Yeah, not the yank up on those handlebars circuit that you probably have <laughs> like I did when I, cause that's what I did. You know, when I, when I first rode rough trails like porcupine rim, I would just yank the front wheel off the ground over all the bumps cause it works, yeah. but it's, it's terribly taxing and it throws you off balance. It's really not the best way to do it, but it does get the wheel up, you know? And that's a lot of us have a lot of muscle memory built up over years and years and years of doing that. Exactly. So, and that's why even when you know and understand something, you often don't do it. Like I, mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've had, I've had so many people come up to me and say, Oh, you coach mountain biking. What do you teach? Do you teach this, this? I go, yeah. So some of these I teach, he goes, Oh, you know, why would I take your course? I know all that. I and then I always just yeah. say, and then they do. And I, and I know they know all that. Not everything I coach, but I know they know a fair amount of it. Mm -hmm. But then I always just say, I'm like, you know all this. And they're like, yeah. And I go, well, why aren't you doing it then? <laughs> and they're always like, oh, I do it. I go, no, you don't. I'm like, I just watched you. You don't do this, <laughs> you know? And then I'm like, I'll break the video camera out if you want, and I'll video you. And, you know, you tell me if you're doing what you just said you're doing, you know? <laughs> right. And I'm the same way. I mean. You, you know, um, I think we all feel like we're better than we are, mm -hmm. if that makes sense to you. You know, like yeah. when I was a snowboarder, we were working on the half pipe one day and I remember telling all my friends, I'm like, man, that first, the first hit in that half pipe, it's awesome. I'm getting like three feet out, you know, mm -hmm. meaning I'm getting three feet above the half pipe. Yeah. And they all looked at me, all my friends would look at me kind of quizzically and I'm like, they're just jealous. You know what I mean? But right. they, they gave me this look like you're not getting three feet out. And I'm just like, they're just jealous, you know, cause I'm so damn good. Yeah. And then that, that evening we watched the video and I was getting maybe six inches out of that half pipe, <laughs> right. but it sure as heck felt like I was getting three feet out of that half pipe. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think a lot of us, because we know, and this is one of the biggest things I try to instill in my students, just because you know something means almost nothing. You have to be able to put that what you know into action, mm -hmm. and you need to be able to put it in action on the gnarliest of trails. If you're looking down while you're riding a pretty boring dirt road you're probably going to get away with it. Like, you know, you, you know, you might go a little slower than you would if you're looking ahead, but you're probably mm -hmm. not going to crash or anything. Right. But if you're looking down in that Rudy Rocky gnarly section, then you're, there's going to be a problem. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you need, everything needs to be ingrained so much that we can do it in the nasty of, of conditions. And we're not thinking about doing it. Our body just does it. Right. Yeah, you make a good point. And I think, was it Yoda that said, knowing is not doing? You know, I mean, like that, that's yeah. just because you know it doesn't mean you do it. And we're all human. I mean, we can point to 
any number of examples in our lives where it's like we know we know healthy foods to eat, but do we always eat healthy foods? No. <laughs> so and it shows you the power of habit, right? right? Exactly. I'm marrying a woman who has a 12 year old daughter who I love. Clara hates when I curse. Mm -hmm. So I do my best to not curse in front of her, mm -hmm. but I still curse in front of her because it's a habit. Right. You know what I mean? And then I'm always apologetic and I catch myself, but that's the thing. Like I know not to cuss in front of my daughter, you know, even mm -hmm. if she, even if, even if she didn't find it so offensive, it's just, not a good thing you want to teach your right. child. You right, right. It's like, but I still do it because it's a habit. I mean, I'm getting better again with practice. I'm getting better, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. but that's, you know, I think we got a little bit off topic there, but that's <laughs> no, these are, these are life lessons. Well, but, two of the concepts that you mentioned uh, so far, body positioning, and you also talked about cornering and about steering. Another thing that I feel like you uh, incorporate into your training and your coaching is this idea of conservation of momentum on the trail. So, um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like how, how do you see sort of maximizing speed while minimizing your effort? Yeah, this is an excellent topic. And, um, it, it's interesting too, because, you know, you, you asked, you know, a lot of my students sign up so they can learn to ride faster mm -hmm. and, as I've gotten older and, and my, some of my students have gotten older, that's not even true so much. I think most hmm. of my students sign up because they want to be more confident and have more fun. Okay. But a good percentage, you know, still want to get faster. And, and it, well, excuse me. I think everyone wants to get faster, but they don't want to get recklessly faster. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, like right. they would love, you know, if they could do this cross country ride in, in two hours instead of two and a half, they would love that, but they don't want to, you know, risk their neck to do that. If you yeah. know, that makes sense to you. Yeah. You well, know? maybe they see their buddies, right? I mean, a lot of us you know, yeah. ride with others in group rides and we feel like, Oh, you know, I don't want to be the slowest guy in the bunch. And you look at other people and you're like, how are they able to, you know, beat me down the hill so badly? all the time. What am I doing it's, wrong here? Exactly. You know, and I read a lot of philosophy. Um, and, um, one of my, um, one of the most interesting things that I still struggle with a little bit is the concept that there is no good and there is no bad. It's just what we label things. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and this is a great example. As I mentioned, I have asked that, you know, for a mountain bike racer, that's a pretty horrible thing to have. But boy, for a coach, what a wonderful thing to have mm. because I realized I wasn't going to outpedal anyone. You know, mm -hmm. remember I raced cross for those listening that weren't around mountain biking in the nineties, in the nineties, everyone did everything, you know, like if, if you signed up for a race on the same bike, you would often do a hill climb downhill and a cross country race. And right before I got into the sport, it kind of died right about the time I got in the sport. Mm -hmm. They often had trials competitions. Oh, so right. literally you would do a trials competition, a cross country race, a downhill, and maybe a hill climb in the same weekend on the same bike, <laughs> um, which is pretty awesome. Honestly, I kind of wish it was still that way. Cause there was yeah. a lot more, a lot more intermixing of tribes kind of, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, now yeah. it's like, you know, the downhill tribe and the enduro tribe and the cross country tribe. And they kind of don't, don't even know each other, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. which is, which is, it's kind of sad. So anyway, I realized I wasn't going to outpedal people. So I had to become more efficient mm -hmm. and I was out riding with, um, 
a buddy of mine. We we're both sport cross country racers at the time, as well before I started coaching and mountain biking. And we were on a, a trail, probably a lot of listeners are familiar with. It's called um, Mary's Loop and Lions Loop in uh, in Fruta, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And we're, we were out on Lions. And my buddy, he always beat me, not by much, but I mean, he would definitely beat me by, you know, two or three minutes in an hour and a half race, which actually is a fair amount of time, I guess. He realized that on this kind of tricky section that had a lot of little short ups and downs and a lot of little corners that he was in my way, Hmm. you know? And so Mm -hmm. finally he's just like, am I in your way? You know, you can go ahead. And I'm like, okay, which I thought was odd because this guy's way fitter than me, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And after he let me go ahead, after about two minutes, I turn around and he's way the heck back there. Yeah. You know, he's just way back there. And um, so I started realizing that, you know, my background growing up with my, the two biggest things I loved growing up were skateboarding and uh, BMX. And then I got into snowboarding when I was mm-hmm. in my 20s. And, um, through all three of those sports, I learned how to work with the terrain to my advantage, mm-hmm. you know, pumping, contouring, which is kind of like pumping, but you're not using as much energy. You're not trying to gain speed. You're trying to just keep the wheels on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I started watching my buddy and I realized he was so incredibly stiff on that bike. Mm-hmm. Like literally whatever the bike did, he did which means if his rear wheel suddenly gained two feet, his head and chest suddenly gained two feet, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not very efficient. You know, it takes a lot of strength to, or a lot of energy to move, you know, someone's head, chest and hips up two feet off the ground. Yeah. Whereas on the same little two foot bump, my hips weren't moving. Cause I was just sucking it up with my legs and my arms, mm-hmm. you know? And then there, there's so many little things like that that will make you so much more efficient on the bike. And one big thing though, is, is looking ahead. And, you know, it's so funny because it's the most over talked about and underutilized thing I've ever seen in my life. Like everybody knows to look ahead. Right. And 90% of mountain bikers, I believe think they are looking ahead, Mm -hmm. but if you watch, they're, they're simply not. I mean, it's, it's really sad. I was at the, um, I think it was 2010 or 2011 national championships were in uh, at Sol Vista, Colorado, which is now Granby Ranch. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the cross country race, there were these three wide open. I mean, we're talking like 50 foot radius corners that had a small berm on them. Uh-huh. And I watched as the, the guy who, the three guys who got first, second, and third in the national championship cross country race came through those corners. And because they were all looking about three feet in front of their front wheel, Mm -hmm. which gives you the perception of going very, very fast, they were all dragging their brakes. And I promise you, they, you, me, we could all sprint at those corners at a full gallop. Mm -hmm. And not break at all and make it through those corners as yeah. long as we were looking through, even with no good cornering skill. They just weren't challenging corners. Yeah. And I timed it. So, you know, I videoed these guys and I timed it. I put my video camera up and then I did it myself. Mm-hmm. And it took them 
my numbers, remember this is 10 years ago, but it took them, let's say seven seconds to get through those corners. Mm-hmm. You know, the two corners combined. Yeah. It took me like four, but now oh, that it only wow. take four. I was using less energy. It takes a lot of energy to break because mm-hmm. you're resisting when you're breaking, your body wants to continue to accelerate. Mm-hmm. So you have to brace yourself against the bike. So you slow at the same rate the, the bike does. Right. So that takes energy. Secondly, I, I don't know. I didn't have a, I didn't have a, um, a radar gun, but <laughs> I exited that last corner probably going twice as fast as they did. Right. Which means I covered that neck straightaway at twice the speed they did while using less energy because they probably got on the pedals and sprinted across that straightaway. Mm-hmm. I probably did that straightaway faster than them, and I didn't pedal one bit. And you can see how that adds up all the way around a race course yeah. or just a track, sure. you know, a trail you're riding. It doesn't have to be a race course. And, you know, it's amazing because I, I, I guarantee in my cross country race courses that you'll shave two minutes an hour off of your times. Like you can use Strava to, you know, to test this. Yeah. And I had a student, I don't know, five, six years ago, tell me um, on the Sunday of the course, he's like, Gene, you know, I pretty much knew everything you've said in this course. I learned a little bit, but you know, I've got a six hour drive home and I don't want to drive at night. So I'm going to leave at noon. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm like, okay, you know, and he takes off and I'm thinking, okay, that's one of the students that's going to ask me for his money back on Monday. No biggie, <laughs> you know, it, it, it happens, right? I'd be explaining something and he was looking off in the distance, not even looking at me, you know, not even paying attention half the course, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It, and, um, so anyway, sure enough, it wasn't Monday after the course. It was Tuesday after the course. I get an email from the guy. Mm-hmm. And he was a, you know, serious expert, cross cat one cross country racer in his uh, 30s or uh, in his 40s, I think. And for those that don't know, the 40 and over cat one class is the most cutthroat, badass racers. Because if you're still racing cross country over 40, you're a freaking stud. <laughs> you know, like, like there's no, there's no, you know, there's no, uh, easy pickings like, well, at least I'll beat these four guys. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it's like, no, you're, you know, like you gotta be on your a game. Yeah. So this guy, like a smart cross country racer, this guy used Strava. He used, um, a heart rate monitor and a power meter, mm-hmm. you know, to track his progress. And the, one of the few times he was paying attention in my course, we were talking about, it's great. And, and I recommend this to everyone listening. It's great if you have a loop that you do near your house fairly consistently. Uh-huh. It can, you know, because it's great for testing things. You can use Strava or a little stopwatch and say, okay, you know, my best lap is an hour or you know, one hour, one minute, and thirty seconds, or you mm-hmm. know, whatever. You know, write that down, and then you say, I'm going to try less tire pressure, see if I'm faster, see if I'm slower, and then do it again. You know. Yeah especially if you have a heart rate monitor and or a power meter, because then you can try to maintain the same power and the same heart rate throughout the, the ride, you know, and see if you got faster or slower. Yeah. So this guy had a course like that. So, and I, in the course he had told me, he goes, yeah, man, my record is one hour, one minute and 20 seconds, I think is what he said, something to that effect. So anyway, I get this email from him. Uh, on the Tuesday after my course ended on Sunday, this is the Tuesday after the course. And he said, Hey, I wasn't really ex- 
too stoked on your course. You know, I paid a lot of money, you, you know, and, uh, you know, thought I knew most of that. Yeah. But I decided, you know, since I paid $800, I was going to use your vision techniques today mm-hmm. and do that loop I told you about. And by the way, the vision techniques, a lot of what I teach, I've got to give credit. I learned from um, Keith Code, the the motorcycle coach I told you about earlier. Yeah. So uh, he went out and used those techniques. And he said, Gene, you know, you told me when you're looking ahead, it feels like you're going slower. And, you know, because, man, sure enough, I felt like I was going slower. The whole, you know, pretty much the whole ride, I felt like I was going a little slower than I usually do. And, you know, my heart rate monitor data and my power meter data backed that up. You know, I wasn't using my normal amount of power and, Mm -hmm. you know, my heart rate was a little lower than normal. But, you know, I paid 850 bucks for that course. You know, (laughs) you know, I'm going to I'm going to give this a good test. And Mm -hmm. he goes, so I kept I kept focusing on, you know, looking ahead, using the vision techniques you taught me. And, you know, I got done. And again, I looked at the power meter, looked at my heart rate monitor while my Strava was loading. And I was a little disappointed, you know, because they were both, you know, lower than normal, not way lower. I don't remember the exact percentage, but, you know, they were lower than normal. And then he said, and then the Strava finally loaded and it said 56 minutes. Oh, geez. Wow. So I get it. So the, the next sentence cracked me up. So I guess your stuff might work. Except he used a different <laughs> word for stuff, I think. Right. Um, but uh, right, it, and that blew me away. Honestly, I did not think. Especially remember, this is his first day practicing those techniques. He's probably yeah. not particularly good at those vision techniques. I did not s- expect a really close to ten percent time savings. Yeah. I expected a three to five percent time saving, but he saved ten percent. Yeah, geez. You know, and. and I watch so many American down uh, cross country racers that, I mean, they've got to be as fit as those European racers. Mm-hmm. Well, why do they always get 10th place? Yeah. You know, or 11th place at world cups, you know, as their best finish. And a lot of it to me is they just don't have great technique. And unfortunately, and I'll say this is someone who, who fights with his ego constantly mm-hmm. their egos just get in the way because you know i i mentioned those guys that got top three at, at soul vista at the national championships I, I found two of them after the race and i approached them and said hey congratulations you know great job i was watching you ride today and i noticed a few things that you know you, you could improve on that would definitely <laughs> save you some time sure that went over and, well Oh God, it went over, you know, like a fart church, you know, I mean, it was, I mean, they took great offense to this and, yeah. and you know, and I, I prefaced it with like, you know, I'm a coach, I'm a right. professional downhill racer. This is what I do. Yeah. And you, you know, started with, with congratulations. So, so yeah, and I started with that. congratulations. I mean, I did my best to not come off as I know everything and you suck or something because mm-hmm. they obviously didn't suck. They just got the top three finishes, right. you know, in the national championships. One of them was a national champion. But it blew me away that, and this is a big difference between European mountain bike racers and American mountain bike racers, and probably almost any other country, South African mountain bike racers even, hmm. is in every other country, 
they're looking for the smallest edge. They're looking for any edge. Yeah. Oh, if I eat, you know, four kiwi fruit before the race, I'm going to go faster. I'll try that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. they're looking for any edge. And here I was offering these people an edge and they, they didn't want to hear about it. Yeah. Huh. You know, and it, it's, you know, and I do understand, you know, mountain biking is a very do it yourself sport. Mm hmm. And we're very do-it-yourself country. Right. You know, everyone, you know, everyone wants to feel like they did it on their own. You know, and people mm -hmm. will tell me that, you know, Gene, you started Better Ride on your own, dude. You know, that's your business. You should be really proud. And, and I am really proud, but I didn't do it on my own. You know, no one, I mean, you know, I use the roads my tax dollars and your tax dollars pay for you know, to get to places. I used BLM land that I have permits for. Nathan Rennie helped me. Cedric Gracia helped me. Like I said, all these people helped me. Mm -hmm. I didn't do it on my own. You right. know, like Greg Menard didn't become who he is on his own. You right. know, it's mostly great. And Greg, Greg deserves all the praise he gets because he is a phenomenal person. And 90% of it is his personal drive to win and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But he he's received a boatload of help along the way. And I think he would acknowledge, I know he would acknowledge that, yeah. but anyway, I'm off in left field again, but, um, you know, it, it's sad to me because, um, the only course I have right now that isn't selling well is my cross country race course. Huh? And, and no one needs this more than cross country racers, <laughs> right? You know, because yeah. just because they race the longest. Mm -hmm. So a small percent of difference can make the biggest gain for them, uh, you know, yeah. than it would in a downhill race. I mean, 1% right. faster in a downhill race in a, you know, in a two minute race is barely a second, you know, cause that's 120 seconds, a 1% difference in a two hour race is a massive difference, right? You know, yeah. Yeah. even better a five or, or in the case of that one student of mine, a 10% difference the day after my course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Yep. Well, yeah. I mean, even as you found in the early nineties, you know, racing is competitive, you know, even at every level. Oh, yeah. And if, it's, if you, if you want to win, you know, there, you gotta, you gotta put in the work and, it's interesting too, the student you mentioned that, um, saw such a big improvement just from focusing on vision. You know, I think a lot of us too, it's like, we may be really good at some of the skills, but then there's like that one thing that's like really, really holding us back. And yeah, you'll never know what that is until you, you break it down and start working on each of the parts kind of individually. Yeah. I mean, again, just like in snow skiing, when I started to learn how to do everything correctly before, you know, when I was a pro, before I started Better Ride, you know, almost everything that's intuitive is wrong. <laughs> so, you know, um, I've had so many students that have been riding, like, I don't know if you know um, who Bryson Martin is. Bryson Martin Sr. Um, owns and started uh, DVO Suspension. Okay. And his son, Bryson Martin Jr., was a pro motocrosser and uh, a pro downhill racer. So he, um, he took one of my courses from me. And at the time, Bryson Martin owned uh, Tenneco USA, which was basically Marzocchi USA. Mm -hmm. 
And Bryson said, hey, can I sit in? You know, I'll, I'll be on my phone doing business a lot. But when I'm not on my phone, can I sit in on the course? And I'm thinking, you own Marzocchi. You know, yes, you can sit in. You know, this might, this might be good for me. You know? right, right. So, and I didn't know this, but Bryson has been mountain biking since the 80s. Oh, wow. And Bryson is a badass. Like, he will whip my <laughs> He will whip my tail in a cross country race, you know, mm -hmm. or probably an enduro type race. If, you know, like I, you know, downhill, I'm sure I'd beat him. Well, I'm not sure, but I think I'd beat him. <laughs> but, um, but he can definitely, you know, outpedal me. And he'd been riding for 30 years. And at the end of the course, he was like, Thank you for finally teaching me how to ride after 30 years. Oh, wow. I was doing so much wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, that was, that was just, you know, one of the, proudest moments of uh of my career really when you have someone with his background say that but i've had so many students say that and again i'm not bragging about my coaching i'm just bragging about coaching in general in anything that you do you know if you go out and play mm -hmm. golf every day and meanwhile i'm taking lessons right now you might be able to whip my butt but in two years if i took two years of golf lessons at the end of those two years, I'm going to be way better than somebody that's a self-taught golfer. I guarantee you that. Right, right. You know? Yeah. And the, the difference with mountain biking is mountain biking is kind of dangerous. <laughs> you know, golf's not so dangerous. Right. You know, whereas mountain biking is pretty dangerous. So it's just one of those things that, you know, if, if we could be more like the Europeans and go, wow, you know, I know a lot about this sport, but I bet there's some stuff I don't know. And maybe there's some stuff I do know that I'm not doing. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I should look into this before, you know, anyone listening thinks I'm just trying to sell my product. If you look at my schedule, most of my courses sell out already. I, I don't really need any more business. Mm -hmm. I just want to help people. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and this is a great way to get better, you know, at anything yeah. that you do. Yeah, definitely. Well, this is part one of our conversation with Gene. Be sure to tune in next week for the second part of our interview. That's all I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. I noticed there's an article on your website titled, Is Mountain Biking Wrecking Your Health? And, you know, obviously most of us just assume we're doing something good for our bodies by going out for a ride. But it sounds like if we don't have possibly good form, we could be causing damage to ourselves. Is, is that true? Well, a little bit true. The, the, the biggest form thing I'll give you right now, there's only one form thing that's really going to probably help you not get damage your body as much. Mm -hmm. And that's hinging at the hips versus, versus kind of bending at your belly button. Uh, okay. And literally, literally focusing on hinging with a flat back. Cause mm -hmm. you know, in mountain biking, both when we're standing and descending or when we're seated and climbing, we tend to kind of lower our chest towards the handlebars a bit, especially mm -hmm. the steeper the climb if we're seated and climbing. Well, when we lower that chest, do it from the hips with a hinge, not from rounding your back, right? Okay. And a bunch of – it's really interesting, and there might be some aerodynamic thing to this, or it might be the fact they typically don't have the strongest cores. Mm -hmm. Cause I see this in the tour de France a lot, like these really rounded backs. And I'm like, that can't yeah. be good for you. You know, I'm just like, yeah, that looks terrible to me, yeah. but you know, maybe it's more aerodynamic or, or I don't know. I don't know the whole spiel behind that, but that's the, what I'm getting at when I talk about wrecking your health 
and I, I say this because all the things I'm about to tell you have happened to me because like, I think many people, when I first got into mountain biking, I was like, this is awesome. I don't need to go to the gym anymore. <laughs> you know, I get this, I get this great exercise and I'm outside and you know, I, I mentally, I feel so much better. And I tell you what, mountain biking is incredible for our mental health. Mm-hmm. It, it does wonders for our heart health and our lungs and some of our leg muscles. <laughs> some of them. It does. And, but, and that's the problem is oh, again, with almost any sport, there's a lot of imbalances in mountain biking where you're working one, one muscle, but not the opposing muscle. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, and there's certain things in mountain biking like that, that everyone will tell you mountain biking requires a very strong and stable core and low back and lower back, which is part of your core, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't develop that at all. You know, you can ride for hours and hours a day and it's not going to develop that core strength. Right. But you need that core strength to ride. Well, Mm -hmm. it also, there's a lot of imbalances in the, in the fact that it really, really works our quadriceps and our gluteus maximus, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't really work our hamstrings that much. Hmm. So, um, and it also, there's a ton of stability muscles in our legs and it works them in funny ways or, or or it it doesn't even use them. Hmm. And if you can strengthen all those muscles, you're not going to get the, and maintain your mobility you're not going to get as many of these overuse injuries and these imbalance injuries. Okay. You know, one of my favorite things, uh, I, I love this guy. Uh, Hans Ray calls it your chocolate foot in one of his videos, <laughs> right? And your chocolate foot is the foot you like to put forward. Mm-hmm. And all but two mountain bikers I've ever met and discussed this with, including Greg Menar, they all favor one foot forward over the other. I don't know. Like I said, I've met two people that say they can honestly ride either foot forward and it doesn't matter. And I'm jealous as heck of those two people (laughs) because I cannot do that. So when it gets on easy trails, I do it a lot more and more when the trails easy. The first thing I try to do is put my non chocolate foot forward up, which is my right foot. foot. I always ride left foot forward. Right. So, uh, I put the non chocolate foot forward, but it still feels awkward. And the second there's going to be some roots or rocks to go over or a jump to hit or a corner, I got to hit fast. Mm-hmm. I, I put that left foot forward again. That's just where I'm more comfortable. Mm. But the problem is that creates this twisted torso, my hips, anyone who studies this will can probably, um, articulate this a little bit better than me, but. We have myofascia, which is kind of like our spider web surrounding all of our muscles. Mm-hmm. And I had it explained to me once by uh, a body worker, and it was a great way she explained it. It's like a spider web. Okay. So if you're looking at a window in your house, and there's a spider web that takes up the entire window in your house, mm-hmm. but you pull on it only one inch from the, 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 the lower left corner. Mm-hmm. Does it only affect that part of the spider web or does it kind of affect the entire spider web? Right. Right. So I first realized this, I was getting um, a massage from my massage therapist or a new massage therapist to me who happens to be a mountain biker. And um, she said, Oh, 
so your right leg is your trailing leg. And I'm like, how did you know that? <laughs> and she's like, the way it's twisted, hmm. you know? And then I went to a chiropractor years after that. And he had me stand in front of a sheet against the wall. He goes, square up against that sheet. I want your right shoulder to be, you know, say three feet away and your left shoulder three feet away Mm -hmm. and your left hip bone three feet away and your right hip bone three feet away. So I lined up perfectly square to that sheet. Mm -hmm. And then he dropped the sheet and behind that sheet was a mirror. Mm -hmm. And I would say one of my shoulders was 30 inches from that mirror and the other Mm -hmm. one was 20 inches from that mirror. Oh, wow. Like I was drastically twisted, but we have, we have this thing called proprioception. It's kind of our awareness of where our body is in space. Mm -hmm. Our proprioception adjusts to anything. It's amazing. So my proprioception had adjusted to being crooked like that. Hmm. So it didn't feel like I was crooked. Yeah. Right. So all these things are what can really wreck your health with mountain biking. And yes, what we love to do in life, what skeptics love to do, and I'm a skeptic, what skeptics love to do in life is they'll point out the anomalies. Well, yeah, this guy doesn't do that and he's fine. Right. Yeah, he's he's a freak. But the majority <laughs> of people that do this aren't fine. Right. Right. So we all have that buddy that doesn't stretch ever and is more flexible than we are. Well, all I, again, I'm just jealous of that guy. Mm-hmm. But if I if I live his, his lifestyle, I know what happens to me. Right. I've quit this sport twice. Mm. Right? Twice mm-hmm. I've completely quit mountain biking. Once I took like eight weeks off and went to Bali and just did did uh, yoga for eight weeks and one week of surf camp. And that finally got my body straightened out enough to – I did a bunch of – of physical therapy while I was mm-hmm. there too. Yeah. And then most recently I was 50 years old and the world masters championships were in about uh, Val- a Italy. Mm-hmm. And I signed up, I paid my entry fee and I was up in uh Whistler training my butt off doing some, uh, BC and, and Canada cup, uh, downhill races plus training at Whistler. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't ride anymore. After every ride, after every lap at Whistler, my body would just hurt worse after mm. every lap and during the, during it. And I went to the chiropractor in Whistler that I'd been to before. And on his desk was this book called Foundation Training. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember it had a Ford by Lance Armstrong. Oh, wow. So I bought that book and I just put it on a shelf because after that chiropractic appointment and taking a couple of weeks off from riding, I felt better again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I'm at my little place in South Africa that winter and I'm taking my wetsuit off and my back locks up. And I literally, for two days, I just crawled around my little house in South Africa. I could not stand up for two days, you know? And then I remember that book. I'm like, why don't you open that book? (laughs) And I, and I started doing the exercises in that book and after a day of doing those exercises, then a day off, then another day of doing those exercises, the next day I went and rode my mountain bike and felt great. Oh, wow. Right? And, and, but since then, it's been a constant battle because, like most humans, I'll do that foundation training until I feel really good and strong, and then I'll keep doing it so I stay good and strong. But then because I'm feeling so good and strong, I start slacking, and I start slacking. 
Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the back goes out again or something, you know? Right. So, but my back has never gone out while I'm actively doing my foundation training, mm. you know? Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to help people not do what I did. Obviously that article, especially the people that didn't read the article and just commented on the, on the title of the article. Mm-hmm. It, it's really funny. If you go to my LinkedIn page, people just tore it apart yeah. and it's obvious they didn't read it. Cause right. if you go to the, if you read the article and then read all the comments on my blog, which means to get to the bottom of my blog, they probably read the article. Mm-hmm. They're all super positive. You know, they're right. like, Oh man, thank you. You know, this really makes sense. Blah, blah, blah. But, um, so, you know, I obviously that's not going to help my business much by writing that article. Mm-hmm. I wrote that article to help people not go through all the pain I've gone through yeah. and to teach them to take care of their bodies. I mean, just think of the position we are in mountain biking. We're hinged over while we're trying to look ahead. Right. That puts a massive strain on our necks. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I can't think of any sport where the correct descending posture you know, so bad for our necks, but, but, you know, puts us in an athletic position otherwise than being bad for our necks, you know? And, uh, you know, it's kind of the opposite of sitting in front of a computer all day, which is also bad. And that's another reason, you know, as I wrote my article, I don't know about everybody else's life, but my life is sit in front of my computer all day, answering emails and writing my blog articles and Mm -hmm. working on my business and then going out and writing. Right. You know, yeah. so it's like, you know, and especially since COVID, I used to always try to do at least two yoga classes a week and a bunch of yoga on my own. Mm-hmm. But since COVID, you know, the yoga classes are online and that's just not the same to me. You know, it just it doesn't motivate me in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I haven't done a yoga class in over a year now. Oh, yeah. And I mean, luckily I do my own stuff. But so my whole thing on that was I just want people to realize that mountain biking is really good for our mental health, good for our heart, good for our lungs, good for parts of our legs. Mm-hmm. But if we can add some cross training into that and some mobility training into that, we're going to be able to mountain bike much longer in our life and enjoy it much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, you mentioned a number of different names uh, in our conversation so far, different folks you've worked with over the years. Tell us about one or two of the pros that you've worked with uh, who really stands out in terms of like the work that they put in and then kind of the the gains that they were able to make uh, based on this idea of like really focusing in on technique and form. Okay. I'm going to start with a person that I coach that I just think is a wonderful human. And that's Sue Haywood. I was fortunate to coach her in, uh, I think I did a camp outside of Philadelphia about 10 years ago or 11 years ago. And she ended up working for me as a better ride coach for a little while. (laughs) And for those that don't know her, um, she did everything correct to get a spot in the maybe 2000 Olympics or maybe 1996 Olympics. I forget. (laughs) Or maybe two, I don't know which Olympics. Might have been 2004 or eight Olympics, yep. <laughs> but um, she did it all right. She did everything US, USA Cycling told her to do, and then they gave her spot to somebody else. Oh, no. Right? So she sued USA Cycling, and I believe she won. You know, she can't discuss this, one of those settlements where you can't discuss your settlement. Mm-hmm. But, um, but anyway, she is probably the most genuine, awesome human 
and uh, and it it took probably a lot for someone of that caliber to trust someone like me who's not near at her caliber and take coaching from me. And now she does, I don't know if she still does a lot, but she definitely puts on a lot of courses on her own um, on the East coast where she's from in Virginia. Okay. And uh, so I just wanted to give her a shout out cause she's amazing. And then um, the two people uh, you, you said two. So that's so hard to break it down to two, <laughs> but uh one person that I've worked with quite a bit as my assistant coach, but um, I did teach him a bit about body position. And uh, what's amazing about him, it's just his mindset. And that's Greg Menar, mm-hmm. right? He He's, uh, for those listening that aren't into downhill racing, Greg Menar, his nickname is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Yep. He's won the most World Cups of anybody. And he's 40 years old this year, I believe, maybe 39, I think 40 this year, last year. He uh, was 39, and he won a World Cup downhill at 39, which is wow. pretty freaking amazing, right? Yeah. And yeah. but, and what that guy has is I've never met somebody that wants to win like he does, but yet at the same time, on the race course and on race day, yes, he's got a big ego. He's freaking Greg Menar, <laughs> but but when you meet him off uh, outside of mountain biking, if you don't bring up mountain biking he might never mention the fact that he even rides. Oh, wow. You know, like he's very humble and I, I respect that. Now, as far as people I've worked with, a couple of people that really stand out are uh, Mitch Ropolato. Mitch Ropolato, again, for those that don't know, um, he's one of the best all around mountain bikers in the world. He's gotten second in a, in his second ever world cup. He got second place in a four cross race. Hmm. He's gotten 11th place in a, a World Cup downhill. He's gotten second place in an EWS. He's been the king of crankworks multiple times. Mm-hmm. He, he wins slalom races. He wins pump track competitions. Every discipline but cross country, he's won in. Let's put it mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. And what I love about Mitch is his, his love of riding. So and he loves it way more than I do. I mean, I go out, seriously, I go out and I ride. And then I come home and I stretch. <laughs> Mitch will go out and ride. And then before or after his ride, he might spend half an hour at the BMX track or at the skateboard park, just mm-hmm. cranking airs out of, out of the jumps or at the wow. dirt jumps, yeah. you know, or just goofing off on the curb in front of his house, trying to do some weird manual landing or something like that. <laughs> he's on that bike. I don't know if he's still this way. I think he is from the videos I watch, but he's on that bike all day long and so is his good friend cody kelly who i've also coached Mm -hmm. they just they just love riding bikes and there's a a kid uh he's not a kid anymore so funny i think of all these guys as kids (laughs) but uh they're all adults now there's a guy i coached when he was a kid named sean near he rides for yeti and uh he he and cody are both co-world champions Uh, they won the world enduro championship two years ago with their teammate richie root Mm-hmm. And Sean Near, again, just like Cody and Mitch, they're committed to practicing. Mm. You know, not only do they do their cornering drills and a lot of stuff that I taught them, they do a ton of stuff I didn't teach them. Like I said, the, all three of those guys like riding BMX tracks and skate parks and dirt jumps. Huh. They just love riding bikes. And it shows because they all, the, you know, they're three of the most famous American mountain bikers right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and 
it's obviously paid off for them. Something I, I, I really try to stress, and this is a life skill. You get out of life what you put into it. Mm-hmm. You get out of mountain biking what you put into it. If you go out and do a 100-mile ride every day, you're probably going to be super fit aerobically. Right. You know, but your skills are probably going to be lacking if that's all you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you go to the skate park every day and just practice skills all day, you might not have the endurance to ride a 30 mile ride, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got to break it up, but, uh, they really stand out. And I got to give a shout out to two other students. Uh, one who probably doesn't might not even remember this years ago. I did a course for the Y riders out of Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And there was this tiny little girl named Chloe. And uh, her married name now is Chloe Woodruff. Mm-hmm. Woodruff. Yep. And she's one of the best American cross-country racers now. And I'm not taking any responsibility for her success or anything. <laughs> it's just cool to see this young, wide-eyed uh, 12-year-old or 11-year-old when I coached her turn into this awesome pro. Yeah. Wow. And then lastly, I had a student. In Dallas, Texas, this guy's from a rancher from Waco, Texas. I coached him when he was 78 years old. Whoa. And his name's Fred Schmid. And what Fred did when he was 80 was he did the Leadville 100. And he finished in under 12 hours and got his belt buckle. Wow. And then at 81, he had a bit of a stomach bug. And he finished in like... 12 hours and 50 minutes or 13 hours or something. And he was pissed that he didn't get that belt buckle. And I like that. You know, the fact that he was angry at 81, he (laughs) expected to do the Leadville 100 in under, under 12 hours. Cause I'm 54 and I doubt I could do the Leadville 100 in under 12 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Jeez. You know, so if that doesn't inspire people, man, he's one of the most inspirational people. And he started riding a bike in his 70s. Wow. He was a rancher. Yeah, that's that's super inspirational. Well, what what would you say, you know, based on the folks you've worked with and observed over the years, what is a skill that separates the pros from those who might just consider themselves advanced or even expert riders? I mean, it almost sounds like you're suggesting that it's mindset as much as anything else, but, but is that right? Or, yeah. or is it, is yeah. it a certain skill? No, it, it's 100% mindset. It's 100% mindset. And then, and there's one other skill and, and I swear, I don't think anyone ever taught this to Greg Menard, <laughs> but um, Greg just never looks down. And if you look, if you watch, uh, it's really great for those listening even if you're not a quote downhill racer or don't, don't even, you know, don't even think of downhilling as mountain biking. It is mountain biking. It's just a different baby form of the way you do it. If you go to, um, YouTube or Red Bull, uh, dot TV, they've got, you can find all these world cup downhill races. And one thing you'll find is Greg Minar, Aaron Gwynn, all those guys, they flat out, they never glance down in a race run. And when they do, they, which I've caught a few of them doing, I caught Aaron Gwynn doing it once. Aaron immediately crashed right after he looked down. Oh, and another wow. time, another time right after he looks down, he makes a big mistake and almost throws away a victory. But um, they just, 
you know, those eyes are up. They're looking ahead where they want to go, you, you know, using probably all the techniques I teach, even though I don't know if anyone ever taught them those techniques. You know, some people seem to be just born knowing certain things, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, but it's mindset, you know, and speaking of Aaron Gwynn, those that don't know Aaron Gwynn, he's the second winningest mountain biker in the uh, professional downhill World Cup mountain biker second winningest in the world mm-hmm. with a much shorter career than Greg Menard so far. And one thing that Aaron Gwynn did that completely changed downhill racing and everyone that was around in the original era of Aaron Gwynn, when he started to become great, will tell you this. He's the first downhiller to truly train like a professional athlete. Hmm. I mean, you know, a lot of downhillers dislike him for this because According to Greg Menard and, and uh, Finn Martin, who was a photographer and former pro downhiller, World Cup racing was a rolling party. You know, like they'd roll in on Wednesday, and, and from Wednesday through Sunday, they were out partying all every night till two in the morning. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. And and then Aaron Gwynn comes along, and the party's ended because if you were out partying, you weren't beating Aaron Gwynn. Yeah. Right. Wow. And, uh, and so, and, and that comes from mindset, you know, Aaron Gwynn's mindset is I want to freaking win. I'm yeah. going to do whatever it takes to win, you know? And he was the first one to really, well, you know, um, G Atherton somewhat the same way, probably G's always been, been a monster, but she still loved to drink and party with, with them. So, you know, the mindset and, you know, what's also, as I mentioned with Greg Menard, the best people tend to have smaller egos again, not on the race course. They have big egos on race day. You need to have a big ego if you want to win a world cup on race day, but off of the racetrack, they tend to have open minds because again, they're looking for any edge they can get. Mm -hmm. And if somebody comes up to Aaron Gwynn and said, Hey Aaron, I noticed this was, you know, you were doing this. I'm willing to bet Aaron would sit there and listen, even though Aaron has no idea who that human is. Yeah. Cause Aaron's like, maybe this guy knows what he's talking about. I'm going to listen to this guy, yeah. you know, cause you know, I'd love to be a one second faster in a two minute downhill, mm-hmm. you know, those are the main things. It's that mindset. Oh, and lastly, I got to bring this up in mountain biking. I hope all mountain bikers understand this. Joe Friel in the, um, mountain bikers Bible, wrote this years ago mm-hmm. and he wrote that something, I, I don't know the exact number, but I believe it was 99% or 95, 95% of the people that hire me to coach them have no chance of making it as a pro mm-hmm. and a little less in downhill, but I, I think it's a pretty much the same now. Like Aaron Gwynn, I'll tell you a story about him in a second to back this up. He's a genetic, he's a genetic freak. Just like everyone, every world cup cross country racer is a genetic freak. If you won the lottery tomorrow, hired the same guy's coach, hired a nutritionist, trained as hard as that guy. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the lung capacity that guy has or the heart that guy has, you're probably not going to make it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I, but that doesn't mean you can't get the same skill as Aaron Gwynn or the same skill as Greg Menard, you know, right. or Rachel Atherton. You can get their skill. You just might not ever have the physical body and lungs and heart they possess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, 
I was at this race in Fontana in, uh, it's, uh, outside of LA and I was pushing my bike up this paved road towards the start. Cause I didn't want to wait for the shuttle. And while pushing my, you know, 40 ish pound downhill bike up this hill, I'm anaerobic right now. Like, you know, I'm breathing so hard, <laughs> right. right. Just pushing my bike up this hill. It's a steep hill. Aaron Gwynn comes by on his downhill bike pedaling and he's got a road cassette in the back. His smallest gear in the back. I mean, his biggest gear in the back was like a 20, you know, (laughs) and he just pedals right by me and he's not even breathing hard. And then the guy in front of me who was also pushing his bike knew Aaron and said, Hey, Aaron, how you doing? And Aaron stopped and had a two minute conversation while pedaling, he never stopped. So now he's doing like three RPM. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. And he's just having a conversation with this dude for a minute or two. Jeez. And then he goes, he goes, hey, you know, good luck today. And then he just pedaled away. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my Lord. You know, I was like, <laughs> he must have the biggest. I mean, I think if he trained in a different way, he might and and enjoyed that kind of suffering. I think he could compete in the Tour de France. You know oh, what wow. I mean? Like he's yeah, got yeah. that kind of genetic, you know, and Greg Menard is the same way. Greg's body looks very similar to mine. Like he doesn't have like a six pack abs or, you know, he's not ripped like Aaron Gwynn or G Atherton, mm-hmm. but that guy, you know, I'm breathing again. My, my heart rates at it's close to max and he's not even breathing. You know, he's just <laughs> wow. talking like I am to you right now. And I'm about to puke, you know? <laughs> so, so there is some genetics, but you know, that's not an excuse why you can't make it in the sport class or why right. you can't do, you know, or why you can't become better. Mm-hmm. You know, you can still become very, very good at this sport. And, you know, you just might not ever be a world cup champion. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, one of the skills that we've talked about is cornering, and that's definitely something a lot of us want to improve. I want to ask you not so much about skills, but in your experience, are some tires better than others at cornering? Well, definitely. Um, the um, Speaking of Greg Menard, and I'm going to mispronounce his tire um, in just a second. It's, it's named after a South African spear. Greg's from mm-hmm. South Africa. Um, it's called the Asahi. And I probably just totally butchered it. Yeah, that sounds right to me. The Maxxis tire. But uh, Okay. But it's a Maxxis tire and it's phenomenal. Another tire, the tire I love to run, and I'm not sponsored by Maxxis. It just happens <laughs> to be the tire I run. Um, I wish I was sponsored by Maxxis. But um, <laughs> is I run a 29 by 3.0 DHF mm-hmm. with 15 P- PSI in it. Wow. That's interesting. And I'm surprised you you run such a wide tire. Why are you surprised at that? I don't know. I, it seems like a lot of people who've been riding for a while that and that have tried it just it's too wide for them. They feel like the the sidewalls are a little floppy and that it's yeah maybe not as precise as something a little bit less wide. Well, yeah, um, I understand that, but this whole precise thing um, kind of cracks me up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, seriously, I mean, if you're so precise that you're hitting a line that's two inches wide, like literally, like if I'm, if you are a half inch to the right or half inch to the left, you're mm-hmm. missing your line. Yeah. You've got way better vision skills than me. 
you know, that's pretty amazing to hit lines that small. And all I know is with 15 PSI on a tire that big, Mm -hmm. my confidence goes through the roof. And I don't think there's much that'll help you more than having more confidence. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, And the traction that that tire delivers is it's unparalleled, you know, because I mean, it's, it's just amazing to me, you know, and, and I'm going to say this, I really struggle with this. Uh, when I like brag about something I've done <laughs> to not sound like it, you know, I'm trying to brag and when I'm, when I'm really just trying to teach somebody a lesson. Right. So in, um, in 2002, I showed up to the world master championships in Bromont, Quebec, with um, these tires called Nokian Gazzalotti's. Hmm. They were they were the first three-inch wide tires. Hmm. And everybody joked at me about my slow-rolling giant tires, <laughs> right? Seriously, every single competitor joked me. And then when I got second place in that race, all my competitors accused me of cheating with my <laughs> three-inch wide tires. Right. And I'm like, make up your mind. Was I right. cheating? <laughs> or, or, you know, and it's yeah. funny because, <laughs> you know, the same thing, you know, believe me, I'm very polite. I caught somebody the other day. I was having the run of my life and I caught somebody the other day walking their dog. And I just shut it down <laughs> and said hi and started to talk to them. But because there is no racing right now, Strava is my little racing, you know, mm-hmm. and in Moab, you know, it's a big swinging contest. Uh, you know, with all our locals here, uh, not all the locals, most of them have opted out of, out of the swinging contest, but, uh, you know, it's just nice to see how you stack up and right. it's nice. To just, I do it mostly to push my own limits, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, I, I seem to be doing pretty good with my three O tire on the Strava segments here in Moab, especially for a 54 year old dude, mm-hmm. you, you know? Um, so the fact is it works and it works really well. And I think yeah. like I read, I read how R- Richie rude tried the three O tire and he didn't like it. And mm-hmm. I read the article and I have great respect for Richie rude. And from the article I read, he tried it for a day, uh, maybe two days. <laughs> yeah. You know, change just feels weird. Mm-hmm. Change feels weird as heck. Right. I think if he gave it a week, he might be like, Oh my gosh, you know, because that big tire, when I'm in the corner and there's a two-inch tall root, mm-hmm. my tire is still touching dirt. You're right. two five with 20-some pounds of pressure. It's on top of the root. The only mm-hmm. thing that tire is touching at the moment is the root. Right. My tire is still touching the dirt, you know? And same mm-hmm. with all the little pebbles out there. My tire is surrounding that little pebble and touching the dirt on all the sides of that little pebble, whereas a two five tire is on top of that rock and just sliding along on top of that little pebble. Right. So I'm a huge fan of plus size tires. You know, they're probably mm-hmm. not going to win a cross country race, <laughs> but, but as far as cornering traction, my gosh, you know, yeah. they've got great traction. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, another thing I want to ask you about is how mountain bike skills training has changed over the past two decades. What about like in terms of the techniques and the skills? Has, has that changed? Are there things that you were teaching, you know, maybe 20, even 25 years ago that are no longer being taught because they were wrong or just because skills have evolved? Have there big, been big changes like that? 
there's been just a few. The biggest change was when I first started Better Ride, I still thought we were supposed to get our weight back. And I quickly learned that that's not true. Our weight should be centered over our pedals. And um, and then there was uh, that hinged body position I, I told you about that I learned from Nathan Rennie and then yeah. Gwen kind of Aaron Gwynn kind of perfected. Mm-hmm. And that's not just for downhill racers. You know, that's for a cross-country racer. That's for a recreational rider. That's just going to put you in a much more neutral position where you can react to the, the terrain a lot better. Mm-hmm. And then for younger, more aggressive, not younger. I hate to use that word because I'm 54 and I'm using this stuff. And I know some <laughs> people older than me that use this stuff. But for more aggressive riders, there's a lot more bump jumping which is a skill where you purposely hit like a tree root or a small rock. Uh-huh. You purposely hit it actually rather hard. So it'll pop you into the air mm-hmm. and you float over the next eight or 10 rocks or tree roots or ah, 20, right. you know, mm-hmm. and that has become much, much more popular. And I used to be one of the smoothest or try to be, excuse me, one of the smoothest riders but I stuck to the ground and right. stayed as smooth as I could, if that makes sense to you, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's generally then, faster, right? Like, I mean, especially if you're talking about downhill, like you don't, you don't want to be airing out the big jumps. You want to just kind of hug them, right? You, well, yes and no. So I originally learned this from Miles um, Rockwell one day in Vermont. I followed him out of the start gate. Uh, in practice and about mm-hmm. 40 seconds into the run, I'm still on his butt, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. like, cool, I'm hanging with one, you know, with one of the best riders in the world. Yeah. And then, and in my eyes, he was being playful. We're in the woods in Vermont and it's really rocky mm-hmm. and he hits, he hits a little rock and he pops up off that rock and, mm-hmm. you know, does a little baby air. And the second he lands, he does it again. Mm-hmm. And then the second he lands, he does it the third time. And I can't tell you what happened next because I never saw him the rest of that ride. <laughs> yeah. Because he just dropped me. Yeah. And then it occurred to me that what he was doing, I was way smoother than he was on the rocks he was bump jumping. He was mm-hmm. smashing into those rocks. Mm-hmm. But then he was barely getting airborne. Mm-hmm. And he was missing the next eight or 10 rocks, which is right. a little smoother than being as smooth as you can, but still hitting those rocks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's when I learned this concept of bump jumping. Hmm. Right. And is that something that was maybe were the bikes holding us back from doing that? Like, is it easier now? To, no, this, to was, do a bump this was in 1990. This was in 1995. It's actually, you wow. know, if I really want to think about it, it might be almost harder to do a bump jump now hmm. because you don't get as much of a bump off of a 29 inch wheel as you'd get off a 26 inch wheel. Right. But suspension, I would think, right? You have a little bit of preload, like you can, I don't know, like use that kind of to your advantage. Uh, Yes. And back then, I mean, this was not actually, I said 95, I think it was 1996. You know, by then we did have full suspension bikes. They weren't particularly good compared (laughs) to today's bikes, but the the, the suspension wasn't bad, but you're Mm -hmm. right. Some of that. And, uh, but I think a lot of it is people's first bikes have suspension now. So they look at the trail. I call it looking at the trail with fully rigid eyes. My first (laughs) mountain bike was a fully rigid mountain bike. I learned Mm -hmm. to go around everything and pick good lines. Right. Well, those good lines we used to pick are kind of stupid on a good full suspension (laughs) bike. You know, it's it's better to go over those, you know. Yeah. 
That's so funny you say that too, because I know a lot of older writers, you know, middle-aged folks like me, you know, we like to tell the younger people, oh, you know, you, you should learn to write on a hardtail. And the only reason we say that is because that's how we did. And we think that's the only way to learn. But like you said, it can introduce some, maybe some bad habits even. Well, yeah, you know, I don't want to know if I want to call it a bad habit, but as far as efficiency, it's a bad habit. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, a thing I teach to racers and I, I teach this less, you know, some people like my friend Sasha here in Moab, he loves to pop off every little hit on the trail. Mm-hmm. And if you watched him and watched me, I think most people say, it looks like Sasha's having more fun than you. <laughs> right. Cause my stoke is going as fast as I can. That puts yeah. me in the zone. Yeah. Right. But his stoke is hitting every little jump and, and being playful and very creative in his line mm-hmm. choice. Yeah. Right. So, but if your focus is on speed, I had this awesome teammate years ago named Ryan Sutton. And um, Ryan told me, he said, Gene, don't take the smooth line fast. Take the fast line smooth. Mm. Right? Yeah. So that often means, especially as you mentioned, on a full suspension bike, the fast line is often going straight over all those routes as smooth as we can do it versus going around all those tree routes. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the more efficient and faster line. Which is more fun is up to the rider, and I'm not going to tell you which is more fun. And you know, because because no, it's it's different for all of us, you know. And and as one of my former coaches used to say or says all the time now, when I see his Facebook and Instagram posts, remember the number one goal is to have fun. Mm, yeah. So that's changed, and then you know, the biggest thing that changed for me though is, is as uh, you mentioned in the written question here, I think you might have left it out of of your oral question a second ago, is um, my delivery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the internet now and and videos, I mean, is in person still the way to do it? Oh no, no that's funny. I I I read delivery differently than that. Um, oh. I do think with coaching, the one thing, the one problem with coaching, I'm certainly doing a lot more of it. I've got a, a coordinating tutorial that'll come out in my next newsletter that that's online uh, on YouTube, my YouTube page. Also, um, mm-hmm. the one big problem with that is you can't ask that video questions, and that video can't watch you. <laughs> right. You know. So so those are two pretty big things to do in person, you know, but, um, and, and another problem is I remember I'm old enough to remember when there was no internet and when the internet came about, one of the coolest things that the internet was going to do was to help people learn remotely. Right. But the problem is, is there's no qualification to post on YouTube. (laughs) So there'd be a lot less stuff on there if there were. Yeah. Right. So, you know, (laughs) A lot of stuff on YouTube is very well-meaning, but isn't a good explanation of the actual skill. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, like for, there's a lot of bunny hop tutorials that I tell my students to sh- turn off the sound mm. and watch what the guy's doing or the gal is doing because they can bunny hop extremely well. Mm-hmm. But they're explaining doing something that they're not doing. If you really mm. listen to what they yeah. say they're doing and then watch their body, they're doing totally different things so they're they're struggling and again they're well-meaning i don't want to that's why i'm I'm not going to mention names or anything because all these people are are trying to help others you know which Mm -hmm. i have great respect for but but some of them do a better job explaining it than others but what i meant from by delivery was how one explains something right so one of the biggest ways i've learned how to explain things better is 
when my student says, a student to me will say, when you say this, do you mean this? Mm-hmm. And then they say it in a more descript way than I was saying it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm going <laughs> to steal that, you know? Yeah. Let me write this uh, down real quick. Yeah, exactly. Let me, let me write that down because, like, that is a better way of explaining this than the way I was explaining mm, it. Yeah. And even though I've been – maybe I'm a slow learner, but even though I've been coaching, including snowboarding, for basically my entire adult life, it seems like, for over 30 years, including snowboarding, I still find that every now and then one of my students – We'll have a better way of explaining what I've been trying to explain for 20 years mm-hmm. better than the way I explain it. Yeah. yeah. You know, constantly learning. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. So I would say the overall takeaway from my courses is not much different than it was 22 years ago when I started. Cause mm-hmm. other than the two skills we mentioned earlier, not much has really changed, mm-hmm. but, uh, the way I explain things has changed dramatically. Hmm. Yeah. You know? Cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, cause the whole goal of a coach is not, you know, we, we, we touched on this earlier. It's not to fill the, the student's head with knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's to get the student performing in a better way. Right. You know what I mean? The knowledge is the knowledge is just there to help people buy into why they're doing this certain thing and whatnot, you know, because yeah. in general, I found the the more cerebral someone is, the more they have to buy into it before they'll commit to doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's that's a really good point. Well, you mentioned this, but in 2019, which was not even two years ago. Uh, you came in first in the Masters 50 to 54 category at the U.S. National Downhill Race. So I want to know from you, like, what are your tips uh, for staying fast and fit, you know, at your age or at any age? I already told you, plus size tires. <laughs> <laughs> the tires just get bigger, you know, when you're when you're yeah. in your 80s, you're going to be on a fat bike. Exactly. No, um, I, I got to credit that tire. And, and for once, it's funny. At that race, everyone's looking at my front tire and going, damn, that thing looks awesome. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I people understood. One? It's like, yeah, you got a motorcycle tire, you know, it's right. like that. But, um, you know, honestly, I think Ned Overend would be a better person to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll give a couple hints because I'm honestly not that fit. You know, my, um, uh, and that's why uh, another reason I kind of wrote that article about, um, mountain biking wrecking your health is I've had a lot of issues over the last few years that or the last 10 years, I'd say that have really held me back. And so one thing I've been preaching recently, I had it done for the second time um, a month ago, I went through all 10 of the rolfing sessions with an amazing rolfer. Hmm. And um, speaking of the myofascia and all the stuff I've talked about uh, earlier, my body moves with so much more grace and so much more ease right now. Thanks to that rolfing session or those 10 rolfing sessions. Mm -hmm. And he pretty much got rid of my asthma because my, I clench my stomach so tight when I talk or do almost anything that my diaphragm can't move when I breathe. (laughs) (laughs) And he opened up my, my psoas muscles 
and he opened up my diaphragm and he's given me things to do to stay, to keep relaxed. Mm -hmm. And part of rolfing, and this is going to gross a lot of people out and it grossed me out (laughs) is he realigns your nasal passages basically, which means he sticks his pinky up your nose. Oh, wow. It's like a COVID test. Yeah. (laughs) And he cleared out my, my right nostril. I kept almost sneezing and you can imagine sneezing with someone's finger in your nose is probably pretty dangerous. Mm -hmm. So he, he had to give up on my right nostril. Um, and he only got about halfway up it, but he got up my left nostril and I can't tell you how much better I'm breathing right now. Oh, wow. It's, it's beyond belief. I've already, I've already, uh, I texted him, uh, on Monday. I'm like, Hey Felix, I can't believe how great my body's working and I'm breathing so much better. I want to come in for another session and see if we can get the right nostril open, like the left nostril. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It's like the one piece I'm missing, but, uh, because I couldn't believe it because I basically took three, three weeks off from riding when he was going, because I went through all 10 sessions in three weeks, which is really fast. And most rolfers wouldn't recommend doing that, but it was the only way I could fit it into my schedule. And, um, after those three weeks, I went out and got uh, some of my personal best times on trails. Wow. And I, and I could tell that I wasn't as fit, but I could also tell I was breathing better and my legs were moving with like, – just turning those pedals over. There were like all the muscles that I should be using mm-hmm. to pedal my bike were being used. Like I wasn't overusing one muscle and maybe not using another muscle. I just couldn't like my whole pedal stroke just felt graceful and, huh. and just ease. Like there was yeah. no resistance to my pedal stroke hmm. and I'm still a little blown away by that. And then the last thing for older people though, in addition to staying uh, mobile is uh, one of my favorite expressions is, we don't stop playing because we get old. We get old because we stop playing. Mm, yeah. So you just got to keep at it, man. You know, and that does mean injury management. You know, like I, my latest article is about you need to ride on the offense mm-hmm. and you do want to ride on the offense. You never want to ride defensively, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean you have to be hair on fire. I'm going to get the Strava KOM offense. It can be like, right. I'm going to be as smooth as I can. You know, which often when you focus on that, you'll be as fast as you've ever gone, even though that wasn't your focus. Mm -hmm. But, you know, your focus can be still on the offense. I'm going to be as smooth as I can. I'm going to ride in as much control as I can. But, you know, you've got to get out there and ride because at our age, fitness, I don't know when it was. I want to say six years ago, I broke four ribs and chipped Mm -hmm. a vertebrae. Oh, wow. Going a whole, going about one mile an hour in a switchback, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably the worst wreck I've ever had. And I was going one mile an hour wow. and it's cause I wasn't warmed up yet, but uh, that's a different story. But anyway, that took six or eight weeks to even be able to like ride the bike down the street to recover mm-hmm. from. Yeah. And I was an invalid, like a 30 foot climb, you know, like a mm-hmm. climb from a parking lot to the upper parking lot. Oh man would destroy me after yeah. that. And I was in tears on the trail thinking I'm never going to get back to where I was. Mm-hmm. And it took a year, a full year to get back to where I was wow. after that injury physically, you know, so we've got to keep playing. And I learned this speaking of net over and 
I learned this from Ned in some interview with him, probably in Velo News a few uh, ten years ago or so. Mm-hmm. It was when he was in his early fifties and he was winning Xterra races, you know, yeah. at the pro level, not in yeah. his age group, but the <laughs> pro level. Yeah. Unbelievable. And he said that he needs a lot more recovery and that he doesn't need base miles anymore. Oh, so what he so what he did was he just went out three days a week for an hour and a half to two hours at race pace. Hmm. And then the rest of his time was recovery. Yeah. And I do feel I need a lot more recovery now than I used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a combination of things too, that you mentioned earlier, you know, doing yoga and different strength training and, and all of those things that it's not just one thing, or it's definitely not just going out and riding a bunch and, you know, riding, riding even more to become faster. It's really kind of breaking it down and focusing on all the the parts that add up to a faster and a better ride. You nailed it. It's that balance. You've got to have that balance. Yeah. Well, so one other question I wanted to ask you is if, do you think that today's bikes make it easier for riders to go faster or to have more fun, which a lot of us want to do and, and how much of the performance, our performance comes down to the bike and how much of it comes down to us as riders? Okay. I'll start with, uh, our bikes better today and more fun. Yeah. And oh my gosh, they're they're so much better. Yeah, <laughs> like I mean, not just a little better. They're a lot better. Not just a little. I mean, they're so much better. My friends and I call them super bikes. Mm-hmm. I mean, bikes nowadays are insane. Um, when I'm coaching people, and uh, and especially if there's an older person in the course who maybe has been riding as long as I have, mm-hmm. you know, and some younger people, I try to tell them about mountain biking in the '90s, <laughs> and um, I think you remember this too. We used to say, if you're not bleeding, it wasn't a good ride. Right. And um, we used to endo probably every other bike ride I would endo once. <laughs> you know, I mean, because yeah. our bikes were way too short for us. Our mm-hmm. stems were way too long. Our head angles were way too steep. And that just put us in the let's endo position. Right. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, and we had 26 inch wheels. I mean, 29 inch wheels and 27.5 they just roll over things easier and you add that with our modern geometry and bikes are they're safer and they're faster you know it's it's unbelievable how much better and now with the steep at least for tall people i'm not sure if this affects shorter people as much but for tall people like me the steep seat tube angles i'm finally not my butt's not over my rear axle (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right and i'm not yeah. riding a recumbent uh, i used to ride basically it felt like riding a rec- i didn't know it felt like riding a recumbent because i had nothing to compare it to but mm-hmm. when i got my first 77 or 78 degree c2 bike mm-hmm. i destroyed all my climbing record you know my personal prs which are like mm-hmm. not even the top 50 percent on most climbs here in moab but uh but i started just destroying my climbing times and i wasn't any fitter it was just mm-hmm. I'm pedaling straight down now instead of pedaling forward. Right. So, uh, yeah, everything's better about these new bikes. Yeah. You know, well, so does that mean, though, that that then it's easier for new riders? I mean, can they just hop on a bike and, and instantly be good at it? I mean, I assume we still still have a lot to learn in terms of becoming more capable ourselves. Yeah. I mean, definitely. 
it's much easier. Like you're, you're going to still develop the same bad habits. Mm. If you try to teach yourself how to ride, probably that we all developed on our crappier yeah. bikes, you'll probably crash a lot less, at least while you're learning though. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, literally, you know, it's like these bikes are just easier to ride. They're just flat out easier to ride. I mean, my current bike is the best climbing bike I've ever owned yet. It's it, in a downhill race. If I had that, it, you know, I'm talking about my, the bike I ride all the time, mm-hmm. which is by today's standard would be called an enduro bike. Mm-hmm. And in that bike, if I had that bike in the nineties, I think I would have been world champion downhill <laughs> racer yeah, just because the wow. bike is just, I mean, not because I had the skill to be world champion, just because it'd be like racing it, you know, taking an, an Indy car, to uh to an electric go-kart race or something like you know i mean it's just like so much the bikes are so much better and the one thing though i do want to stress about this that scares the heck out of me Mm -hmm. because these bikes are so much better it allows us to go much much faster Mm, and so for like when usually when i ride the rockier trails here in moab like captain ahab or um porcupine rim Mm -hmm. and i and i really want to go out and hammer you know like if i'm riding with a group of friends i often just have my my regular cross-country type helmet on but when i want to hammer those trails i put that full face on now Mm -hmm. you know and my elbow pads because basically i'm doing a downhill race now and in the 90s we all had our body armor on when we raced downhill Mm -hmm. and now we're going the same speeds or i mean greater speeds yeah, you know, but we're also tired because we're not taking the chairlift up. You know, we're we're doing a you know we're riding, and you know it's like so. The one scary things about these bikes is they can kind of put us in a position maybe we're not quite ready for yet. But then on yeah. the uh, on the flip side, if you make a big mistake, these bikes are much e- easier, much more forgiving, mm-hmm. and you can recover from that big mistake a lot easier nowadays too. Right. Interesting. You know, I modern bikes are they're just a wonder to me. Yeah. They're just amazing. Here's the deal still though. It's still 90% rider. You put Rachel Atherton or Aaron Gwynn on a trail bike and they'll still whip me if, even if I was on a downhill bike. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And yeah. I'm pretty good at downhilling, you know, but but I'm not Aaron Gwynn or Rachel Atherton good. So, you know, you could put them on a on a much less bike than I have mm-hmm. and they would probably still they'd definitely still beat me. Right. And that's even more so in cross country. You put Chloe on a thirty pound fifteen hundred dollar bike mm-hmm. and she would still crush me if I was on an eighteen pound cross country race bike. Right. You know? Yeah. So so you know the bikes but the bikes do they they make they make the self learning curve a little safer mm-hmm. you're still going to probably learn bad habits but those bad habits aren't as honestly aren't as dangerous mm-hmm. as the bad habits used to be and they're just kind of safer to ride yeah yeah you know yep yeah it is, it is hard to separate sort of the bike from the rider and like you said we could think of examples of you know someone who's a really good rider being able to do you know really pretty well on a on an average bike or you know, an average rider doing really well on a, a good bike. So it is, it is hard to separate yeah. the two. Definitely. So Gene, what's next for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in 2021? 
Well, the biggest thing is uh, becoming a father and uh, a husband to um, my family that's currently trapped in South Africa. And oh, I haven't seen man. them. Haven't seen them in uh, 13 months. Oh, geez. So, uh, yeah, that's that's super tough. Yeah, um, it's been it's been tough. But mountain bike wise, I've been working on producing um, a lot of excellent uh, instructional video content uh, for the riders mm -hmm. who can't make it to my courses. And uh, so, yeah, I just really want to expand my YouTube channel and keep on uh, learning and becoming better at coaching. And uh, I really, I mean, I can't believe <laughs> that I've made a living coaching mountain biking for 22 years. Yeah. Yeah. Who would have thought? I mean, especially back thought, then when right? that, that really wasn't even a thing. It, oh, man, when I started, the resistance I got, uh, I'm encouraging my uh, my fiance, Ilsa, who's also the Better Ride operations manager. I'm encouraging her to see if she can dig up some stuff uh, from MTBR. MTBR, when I first started, I had no money, so it was my only way to market was mm -hmm. I'd go on MTBR and just comment. Like, you know, people would say, how do I get better cornering? And I'd give yeah. advice. And then I'd mention my courses. And you would not believe the people that attacked my mother. They, they, attacked, oh, they attacked the idea of coaching. You can't teach people this. Everyone has their own style. No one can teach this. You know, um, you're an idiot. I mean, you would not believe the resistance I got. It was wow, yeah. mind blowing. And I'm like, okay, you know, you don't like coaching, you know, you don't have to be coached, like, but you don't need to attack my mom. I mean, literally, I remember this one guy from Durango saying that my mom must have been a bitch or something. I was just like, really? You know, I was just like, are you kidding well, a lot me? Of, a lot of resistance to that idea of, of bringing like formalized coaching and instruction to mountain bike skills. Yeah, I was, you know, maybe it's because I come from snowboarding and ski racing. I mean, I was never a ski racer, but that's where, where snowboard racing got its first coaches and everything from. Mm -hmm. And that's just a very structured environment. Yeah. So I just figured, you know, I literally thought when I started Better Ride, I was going to be so busy from day one, I wouldn't know what to do with myself, <laughs> you know, and uh, it was nothing like that. You know, yeah. I ended up having to have odd jobs for five years. And, uh, you know, like I really the first in two, until 2005, which is really the first six years, I struggled. I mean, mm. I wasn't making I was not I was living below poverty level, mm. yeah. you know. But, uh, but yeah, it's great to see that it's really caught on now. And, uh, and you can really see the difference sometimes like at Whistler, I was, uh, coaching someone at Whistler two years ago before COVID, uh, mm -hmm. 2019. And I'm like, Oh, look, here comes a group of students. Watch. They're all going to be doing this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. Mm -hmm. And they came through and I was, I was wrong. They were doing <laughs> the three, the three things I said. Yeah. They were doing nearly perfectly. And wow. I'm like, wow, yeah. this is so awesome for the sport. Yeah. You know, like I couldn't believe how good these people had become, you know? And I'm yeah. like, you know, so it, there is hope. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And yeah, you mentioned yeah. that you're doing some more of the video and online content, but it also looks like you've got a number of in-person clinics happening this year all around the U.S. And a lot of, a lot of them are already sold out. 
Yeah, you know, I've been, like I said, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and I'm really fortunate that, uh, especially thanks to the great um, help I have uh, from Ilsa with my, uh, she's taken over the social media and a lot of the marketing stuff for me. And uh, with her help uh, and just my reputation over the last 22 years, most of my courses do sell out. So, Mm. again, I mean, I just feel really fortunate to, do what I love for a living. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just, I, I literally pinch myself often and whenever <laughs> I'm tired or, you know, like don't want to do something, I'm like, dude, you're getting paid to do what you love. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's like, cool. you know, get off your high horse and do what you go out and do what you love and do it to the best of your ability. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, your enthusiasm and your stoke definitely comes through and yes, yeah, how you talk about it and uh, present it. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us today. Oh, thank you, man. This has been a lot of fun and it's gone a lot longer than I think both That's of us would expect. Right. It has. Yeah. So we'll have to do this as a two-parter, but yeah, really appreciate it. Yeah. Excellent. I, I, I thank you. I'm honored to be on your, your podcast. I, I yeah. feel I'm flattered. Thanks. Well, you can connect with Gene and his team and also find out about clinics that are happening at betterride.net. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.